One other announcement, fellas. We're meeting for prayer uh, this coming Saturday, so the 30th, here at 9 o'clock. Uh, so just a reminder. Uh, I want to introduce to you one of my very close friends. He is a uh, pastor in, at Calvary Chapel Riverbend in Charlotte. He's been a long-time family friend. I was just telling him the other day, we've actually known each other and our families longer than we haven't known each other. It's, we've crossed that threshold. And um, he's a father of six uh, beautiful children, all God-fearing children. Um, he's just a dear friend. He's uh, kind of like our founding fa forefathers of the country. He's a surveyor by trade. <laughs> Just a very gifted man, and uh, I have the high, hold him in the highest regard. He's going to come and share uh, the Word of God with us. Uh, some of you have heard. Come on up, Tim. Um, he, this is important. About almost three years ago, what he's going to share with us, another pastor, Pastor Dale Mwanji from Uganda, shared uh, from the same passage, and so. I think the Lord's trying to tell our church something. At least I think that at this point. I'll wait till reserve judgment for later. Time will tell. <laughs> and the children can be dismissed if they want to. And the youth can stay in. Nobody moves. Okay, great. <laughs> if I can keep it under an hour and a half here. You know, the scripture that the Lord gave me today, there's just so much to say about it, so I will try to uh, keep it as concise as possible, but no time track. Um, is everything good electronic-wise? You guys good? All right, perfect. Um, yeah, so I was just thinking here during worship about the, the scripture, obviously, Greg shared. We've known each other for like over 20 years now. And uh, the Bible tells us in, in 1 Timothy chapter 6, let no man despise your youth, but be an example of, of the believers in word, in conversation, in charity, in spirit, in faith, in purity. And uh, I stand here today because of my example of Greg. And he's, he's absolutely my pastor. I pastor a church, but he's my pastor. And I've watched him for for 20 years now, and just the consistency of his life, I just really want to say I appreciate it. What an honor it is for me to, to be able to give him a little break this weekend and share in the celebration of his family, and so I hope that it's a blessing to you as well. If you want to turn with me in your Bibles to 1 Samuel chapter 14, uh, let's see, yes, 1 Samuel chapter 14 this morning. Uh, that's where we'll be in our scripture. And I'll read from there. It says, It came to pass upon a day that Jonathan, the son of Saul, said unto his young man that bare his armor, Come and let us go over to the Philistine garrison. That is on the other side. But he told not his father. Saul tarried in the uttermost part of Gibeah under a pomegranate tree, which is in Migron. And the people that were with him were about 600 men, and Ahiah, the son of Ahitub, Ichabod's brother, the son of Phinehas, the son of Eli, the Lord's priest in Shiloh, wearing an ephod. And the people knew not that Jonathan was gone. And between the passages which, by which Jonathan sought to go over unto the Philistine garrison, there was a sharp rock on the one side and a sharp rock on the other side. And the name of the one was Bozes, and the name of the other, Shina. And the forefront of the one was situated northward over against Mishmash, and the other southward over against Gibeah. And Jonathan said to the young man that bare his armor, Come, let us go over unto the garrison of these uncircumcised. It may be that the Lord will work for us, for there is no restraint to the Lord to save by many or by few. Heavenly Father, the truth that is contained in that utterance this morning. Lord, let it leap off of the page. You are not restrained even an ounce to save by many or by few. And Lord, we want to be open to hear what you say to us this morning, Lord, to maybe we're the few. Uh, Lord, that you want to minister to this broken world through. So Lord, teach us a little bit about faith this morning. 
so that we can take those steps in honor of you, Lord Jesus. Amen. Well, this passage it may be somewhat familiar to you all. It's really the context of it that gives it just the, the amazing aspect of it. When you look at that, um, just in the book of Samuel, what, where are we at in the book of Samuel? This is, a, this is a time period in Israel's history where there's a lot of transition going on. Samuel really was the last of the judges or the first of the prophets. You know, a lot of guys look at it two different ways, but there's a transitional thing happening uh, within the nation as they pass on from this time period of the prophets. It's also a transition in the nation uh, as far as the anointing of the king. Um, you all know how uh, the people came to Samuel and they said, Samuel, we want a king. We want to be just like all the other nations around us, right? We want to be just like everybody else. We don't want to be different anymore. So they came to Samuel, and Samuel went to God, and he's like, Lord, what, what's going on here? This is supposed to be a theocracy. This is supposed to be a nation under God. We call ourselves that, right? It's on our coins, but poof. <laughs> this is supposed to be a nation governed by God, right? And the people are asking for a king, and the Lord says to Samuel, hey, they haven't rejected you. They've rejected me. They've rejected me. Boy, we are in that same spot. But we're introduced here in, in chapter 9. That's, the, that's the, the flavor that's going on in the nation. But in chapter 9, we find this uh, king. He's introduced to us. I, I think it's kind of a comical thing. You know, what's the, what's the best that we hear about Saul at the beginning? Well, he's like wandering around, can't even find donkeys. <laughs> in chapter 9, it explains that scenario. It's he, he just like keeps wandering and wandering and wandering looking for these donkeys. It's, I was sitting at Greg's property yesterday, and you know, he's got that field back, and I was like, if donkeys got loose there, right, would you keep walking to Spartanburg to keep looking for them? I mean, they just aren't going to go that far, but Saul, that's what he did. And he found himself like super far out in the country. They're like, you're not going to find the donkeys there, man. Well, that's the king that was given to the people. That's Saul. That's the first introduction we have to him. And then in chapter 9, we find him anointed as king. And what do they see in that scene? He's like hiding in the stuff. Saul's like in the corner. Like he's taller than everybody else, but he's hiding behind stuff. This is the introduction we have to this man, Saul, who's going to be the first king of Israel. Some time passes there. Uh, in chapter 11, we find his first real victory. You know, nobody followed him right there at the beginning kind of maybe that's obvious why but he gets this opportunity to fight against Naash the Ammonite and it's similar to kind of the deliverance that the judges gave you know a one-time victory a one-time deliverance God uses a man um, Saul kind of steps into that role and he brings a victory to Israel in chapter 12 you know the Samuel has to reiterate the calling, bring everybody back in to remind them of the fact that they have a king. Uh, so he reiterates their history to them. He's basically pointing out to them that they've rejected God in calling for this king. But it's that God really delivered uh, them, and, and, and it was Saul who he used in that scenario. It's interesting there, you, you look at Saul's life in chapter 12, as, as Samuel was going over those things, he, the people begged for a king. Chapter 12, verse 12 says, You begged for a king. That when you saw that the Naash, the king of the children of Ammon, came against you, you said unto me, No, but a king shall reign over us when the Lord your God was your king. And Saul, Samuel's pointing that out to the people again, saying, Listen, this is the scene you're in because you've rejected God. Now Saul's sitting back and he's watching all this go down, right? He watches the people and they're like, oh, we're sorry that we did that. But Saul's the king. Like, you just get this, there's a couple of things that add up to why Saul seems to be so, uh, what's the word? So his self-confidence is just in the toilet. <laughs> because because he's, just, he's got no reason to be in this position. But here he finds himself as the king of Israel. He's very insecure. That was the word I was looking for. Man, Saul is a very insecure person. But chapter 13, Saul assembles a small army, a small standing army. Jonathan, his son, is one of, those, is one of his generals. He's out there in the forefront um, as the son of the, of the king. 
And in chapter 13, Jonathan goes out. He's actually fighting battles. He defeats the Philistines. He begins to conquer uh, a stronghold there at a place called Geba, the hill, is what that translates as. And that's kind of the the area that we're going to be talking about today, this area of Geba, where this Philistine army was. It's very interesting terrain. We'll go through that a little bit. I'm, like I said, I'm a surveyor. I love maps, so I'm going to show you guys a couple maps today. Uh, but in this area, if you were to go northward out of Jerusalem, you would just be taking the main highway that goes through this area. There was a, there was a passageway there called the Passage of Mishmash. And we'll talk about that a little bit here. It was a kind of a choke point in the terrain of the ground. There was in that area, there's a lot of what they call wadis, which is a washout. You know, we, you guys had a long, big rain here the other day that uh, washed out a bunch of gullies in Greg's property. He had to fill them back in. Well, that happened at one point in the land of Israel when there was a lot of water that covered the earth. They washed out. It produced these big gullies called wadis. And uh, there's this one point as you're going out of Jerusalem where the main road was that there's this huge wadi called the... Uh, what was the name of that thing? I wrote it down. Oh, yes, the uh, Al-Swanat. They have even names for these things because they're so big. But it, it, it forces the road to go through one little passageway because it can't go down through the, the wadi. And that is the area just to the west of Geba that we're going to be talking about here today. The Philistine garrison was stationed in that area because if they had it there, they kind of controlled all the trade routes in that area. And that's where Jonathan goes in. He has this incredible victory to get the Philistines out of the land. Now Saul, in that moment, said, hey, make sure you go tell everybody in the, in the land that Saul did this. This is Saul's victory. I know Jonathan was the one out there, but you tell everybody Saul did it, right? So... That's what's going on. That's the kind of context of the, of the moment there. All of a sudden, the Philistines show back up with an army that is as the sand of the seashore. <laughs> and everybody that's with Saul is like, oh no, what has happened? And you can imagine Saul was looking at what Jonathan did and he's just like, Jonathan, why did you do this? Why did you create this trouble in the land? Now everybody wants to come and get me, right? So in chapter 13, they find this scenario where there's, man, just an incredible army against them. Saul is clearly in trouble. He was there waiting on Samuel to show up. Spiritually, he doesn't know what to do uh, with his people. They're all running away. He doesn't know what to do as a commander. He's just in a bad, bad spot. He even forces himself to, to make an offering. You always see... Saul kind of doing the spiritual thing off to the side. Like, I need to be right with the Lord in this scenario. Uh, that's, and he's the king of bad timing too because Samuel shows up like just as soon as the, the offering was done. And it was, it's just a bad scene. Not, not a good thing for Saul. The enemy army is growing to this point where there's just so many people. There's spoilers going out through the land. There's guys who... You know, the army gets to a certain point where they need their supplies. They're going out, they're raiding Israel. All of that's happening at the same time. The army of the Philistines in chapter 13, verse 5, it says that there was 30,000 chariots, 6,000 horsemen, people as the sand which is on the seashore in multitude. And they came up and they pitched in Mishmash, eastward from Beth Avon. So it's giving you that kind of picturesque, like, there's so many people, we, don't, we couldn't even number them if we tried. That's the imagery that's going on here. And everyone's running away from Saul. And we find out uh, that he's going to be down to like 600 guys here. Not a good scene. That's the, that's the context, that's the big picture of what's going on in Israel, in this very moment. Now in verse 23 of, of chapter 13, the garrison of the Philistines, it says, they went out to the passage of Mishmash. So there's this very specific language about where this took place, the movement of these troops. If you want to show that big aerial 
photo first, the one that's kind of a top view. I wanted to show you guys a couple pictures of this place because it just kind of helps you understand exactly what's taking place here and how big of a deal this is. So in this area of Mishmash, uh, you can see the little town to the north of the screen. That's the modern-day Mishmash. And the little town to the south, right there on the south part of the screen, that's modern-day Giba, the hill. And in between there, that's this valley that would be formed by the wadi heading eastward down to the Dead Sea. You can go on to the next one. See which one pops up here. So if you were in a plane or a drone and you were kind of flying over this area looking to the, to the west towards the Mediterranean Sea, this would be what that looks like. There's the, the wadi, the, the runoff down in between. Mishmash is on the right of the screen now. Giva is on the left. You're looking westward. This is that passage of Mishmash. It's an area where the terrain has kind of calmed down a little bit. There's a bit of a, a valley that's formed in that area. And the highway ran through there because it was the only place you could travel. You just can't, like, if you're going back and forth uh, towards Jerusalem, this is kind of a choke point between all of, the, all of those areas. And so what the Scripture is telling us in verse 23 is this, this huge army of the Philistines, innumerable people, they've now filled this gap and made it impassable for trade they're, they're choking out the land. They're trying to take back this southern hill where they had a garrison where they were able to control the entire area. That's the movement of troops. If you flip to the next one there. This is about where that uh, worst part of the terrain is. Uh, the, the word's going to tell us a little bit about the names of these rocks uh, that, are, that are on each side of that. But as we picture this, maybe go to one more there. This is looking toward the Dead Sea from the passage of Mishmash, okay? From the easy place to cross, looking down uh, at these rock cliffs. And we'll leave that one up there for a little bit as we describe again what Jonathan was up to. Just so you can have a picture. Because it really sets the context for how big of a deal uh, this was. When we look at that scene that's before us, there's a... There's a lesson here. How do I approach the, the, the tough parts in life? How do I approach the tough things, the, the impossible scenarios that I might face in my life? Um, there's a very vast different approaches, right? We have Saul's approach, which is, what can I do about it? What am I going to do about this? When you read through Saul's life, it's always I, 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 me, me, me. What am I going to do? How, how is this scene going to affect me? Make sure you go tell everybody that I got the victory because I want the glory. That's the, that's the picture we get of Saul as a king. It's a picture of our flesh, how we do things that benefit us, right? You look at a group photo, you always pick out. It's a good photo if you look good, right? It's a bad photo if you look bad. We just are naturally, our inclination in our flesh is we just think about us. Well, Saul is kind of a picture of that in Scripture. So when he looks at a difficult scene, we do the same thing. What can I do about this? What do, how, how can I fix right the, the scene before me? But we have this vastly different outlook when we see what Jonathan does with this scene because Jonathan says, what is God going to do about this scene? This is God's problem. You know, here I am, Lord, I'm available, but... I know that really the, the issue is yours. So let's go see what God wants to do, right? That's, that's the, uh, the picture of Jonathan before us. It's a contrast of their outlooks. It's a contrast of their perspectives. It's a contrast of the outcome, for sure. Saul being the man of the flesh. Jonathan being one pictured to us here as governed by the Spirit of God. Governed by what God wants to do through your life. So it comes to pass, verse 1 of chapter 14, on a day, once upon a time. <laughs> I love this because you, you read that phrase, you even say that phrase, once upon a time, and we use that in like the storybook kind of, kind of picturesque thing where we tell a tale. Man, this is not a tale. This is an actual place 
with actual people where God actually did a miracle, okay? There's no, like, this is not storybook. This is fact that is recorded for us in Scripture so that you can take it home with you, read it, and say, hey, maybe God will do the same thing in my life. Maybe God can use me in a way that he used Jonathan. That's why this is recorded for us. So it came to pass on a day. The journey always begins with one day. That Jonathan, the son of Saul, said to the young man that bare his armor, Come with me. Come, let us go over to the Philistine garrison. Let us on the other side. Now, when you look at that picture and say, other side, doesn't it have a little bit different context than if you were just to read it? <laughs> he was standing on one side, and he's looking over, and he says, hey, let's go over to the other side. I mean, that's a pretty big gap <laughs> to just spout that out. We have a, a place in uh, North Carolina called Linville Gorge. Have you, has anybody been to Linville Gorge? A couple of you? So Linville Gorge is somewhat like that. When you're standing on one side, I mean, it looks just like that. But to stand on one side and say, hey, I'm going to go to the other side, that's like, it would be most of your day to just do that if you spent all day trying. That's the kind of gap that we're looking at here. Um, but that's the faith of this man, Jonathan, as he looks at it. Let us go over to the Philistine garrison. That is on the other side. But he told not his father. When Saul tarried in the uttermost part of Gibeah under a pomegranate tree, that sounds so nice, which is in Migron. So when, it's just, when we're looking at that overall map and you saw uh, Geba, the hill, was to the, the southern part, Gibeah was even further south than that. And it's telling us that Saul was in the uttermost part of Gibeah. So Saul's about as far away from the encampment of the Philistines that he can comfortably not look like he's running away, okay? <laughs> he's not near the enemy, he's away from the enemy, and he's on the backside of the camp under a pomegranate tree. That's where Saul is. And with him were about 600 men versus the sand of the seashore. And they've made their move. They've moved into this area of Mishmash, the, the passage there. Ahiah, the son of Ahitub, Ichabod's brother, the son of Phinehas, the son of Eli, the Lord's priest, and Shiloh, wearing an ephod. He was there. That gives us the context that the priest was there. When the priest is there wearing the ephod, the Urim and the Thummim would have been present. That was the, many scholars think it's probably like a white and black stone where they could get a yes or no answer from the Lord. Uh, debate's up for that, but that's the way I, I picture it. Uh, somebody can come to the priest, ask kind of a yes or no, and get direction from the Lord through the through the ephod, the urm, and the thummim. We're going to watch Saul do that here. But he knew not that Jonathan was gone. So Jonathan slips away. And between the passages which, by which Jonathan sought to go over unto the Philistine garrison, there was a sharp rock on the one side and a sharp rock on the other. And the name of the one was Bozes, and the name of the other, Sheena. So it gives us a lot of context here about where where did Jonathan go over? Did he take this easy path? No, he's it's very specific here in Scripture that it's talking about these rock cliffs that are on both sides of this passageway. That's actually where this took place. When you look at this picture, Jonathan climbed up somewhere right there. It's a real place. The, uh, the, the word for rock there is, is either crag or a cliff, and you can picture that just is a perfect description of what we see there. The one side was called the rock of shining. The other one was, was a meant thorny. So, you know, if the sun hit this each and every day, you can see it right there. The, the northern cliff was probably the one that lit up each and every day with the sun. The southern cliff probably stayed somewhat shady throughout the day. Maybe that's where the thorns liked to grow. Um, either way, they, they got their name similar to how we name our, our mountains today, right? The forefront of the one was situated northward over against Mishmash. The, one, the other one was southward over against Gibeah. So this is this north and south facing cliff region. And Jonathan said to the young man that bare his armor, Come, let us go over unto the garrison of these uncircumcised. Interesting because that phrase gives us the perspective that's in Jonathan's heart. 
Lord, this is your problem. <laughs> the problem isn't that these guys were in the land per se. The problem was that they were in the covenant land. And here's this garrison of the uncircumcised outside of the covenant. And Jonathan is relating this back to the covenant of the Lord. Lord, this is your land. This is your promise. This is your promise at stake here to Israel. And so what can we do about it, Lord? What are you going to do about it? That's what he's, he's getting at here. And I love this. He says it may be. It just might be that the Lord will work for us. You know, you read that phrase and it's like, was he, was, did he picture God as like a genie in a bottle? Like maybe today he'll work, you know? Was it, was it something like that? I don't think so. When you read through that, it's, the idea is maybe God will deal with this right now. If we show up and we offer ourselves to the Lord, maybe God will deal with this issue. When you come to those big problems in life, when you come to those obstacles that are like, there's just no solution for this. Do you approach it in that way? Like, am I going to run away? Am I going to just, maybe if I move a little further away from this problem, then it'll calm down. Or do you say, Lord, what are you going to do about this? Lord, how, how can I give you this problem, Lord? How can I give you this in faith to see you acting um, in accordance with your covenant. See, Jonathan knew the Lord. He knew the character of God. He knew the promises of God. And he's acting on all those things in faith just to see what God will do. Lord, maybe it'll be today that the Lord will work for us. And this is just, just a mind-blowing phrase, for there is no restraint to the Lord to save by many or by few. It's a, it's a matter of fact. The Lord can save by one. The Lord can save by a thousand. It's up to the Lord and faith, right? We look at faith, when we, when we think about this passage, we, we think about faith. Faith is an interesting thing. When I, when I was just kind of contemplating that, it's real faith is we are active participants when it comes to having real faith with the Lord. It's, it, we're active participants in something that God is doing. It always hinges on His character, but it doesn't always hinge on our abilities, does it? How many of you have ever dealt with fiberglass? Ever, ever mixed fiberglass? Or how about Bondo? Some, maybe Bondo is more common. So fiberglass is an interesting thing. I, years ago, I used to fix surfboards uh, when I would ding them because I wasn't very good at doing all that stuff. Um, but Fiberglass is kind of this gooey, runny, thick, really it's just gross goo. <laughs> and when you, when you put fiberglass resin, you, you put it into some type of container, and you put a couple of drops of this clear hardener stuff, okay? And when you mix it up, you have a couple minutes, and then it begins to turn hard, and within like maybe 20 minutes to an hour, it's hard enough that you have to like grind it off with sandpaper, because it turns completely hard. So in, when I think of this idea of faith, it's like, what do we bring to the table when it comes to this scene? We bring that goo, right? Years ago, I spilt some fiberglass resin in my garage, and I didn't really clean it up properly. And I, I kind of like tried to wipe it up with uh, paper towels. So it just kind of made this gooey paper towel mess. But it never hardened for years. Like it never hardened. And you always had this kind of tacky, gooey spot in the garage. And I think a lot of times when we approach uh, a big problem in our own efforts, you know, that's kind of what we're doing. We, we spread the problem out. We, we, we put some paper towel in it. But it just, it, there's, that's what we bring to the table when it comes to this life of faith. You know, that's, we're like the goo in the resin. <laughs> But a little bit of faith, a couple of drops of this hardener that goes in, and man, you can use that for incredible purposes. You can actually stick it to a wall, and it'll stay there. But I thought that was an interesting kind of uh, example of the faith that we bring. You know, the reaction is that happens, the chemical reaction in that stuff is like, that's like the unseen part, isn't it? 
That's what God does in that picture. When we bring the faith into the, the mess that we bring, God has something he can work with. And God can use that for incredible things. Things that we never knew were possible. You know, we don't respond to the conflicts. Um, if we don't respond in a way that's consistent with his character, with who God is, you know, you can't expect God's result. We see that a, a tiny little picture in the, in the disciples. There was a couple of disciples that came to Jesus. They looked at an issue. They're, they're passing through Samaria on their way to Jerusalem, and the, the people reject them. James and John come up, and they're like, do you want us to call down fire from heaven? Do you want us just to consume them like Elijah did? Like, that'll be an awesome thing of faith, right? Jesus is like, you don't know what manner of spirit you are of. For the Son of Man has not come to destroy men's lives. He's come to save them. So when we respond in faith, it has to be in accordance with God's character. You know, he wasn't going to allow those guys to just burn up a city. That's not who God was. That's not his character. So, interesting. Back in 1 Samuel, it, we continue here with this text. It says, His armor bearer said unto him, another amazing phrase, Do all that is in your heart. Turn thee, behold, I am with thee according to thy heart. Then said Jonathan, Behold, we will pass over unto these men. We'll discover ourselves to them. They're saying this from the other side. And if they say unto us, Tarry till we come to you, then we will stand still in our place and we will not go up to them. But if they say, Come up to us, then we'll go up. For the Lord has delivered them into our hand. This is going to be the sign to us. The sign. The idea is like a green light. We're going to, we're going to let them know we're there. We're going to announce ourselves to them. They can either say, hang on, we'll be down in a minute. Or they're going to say, come on up. <laughs> and when you picture that, the Philistines standing on top, Jonathan and his armor bearer at the bottom, the Philistines saying, come on up. <laughs> Pretty crazy scene. So both of them, verse 11, discovered themselves to the garrison of the Philistines. And the Philistines said, behold... The Hebrews come forth out of their holes where they had hid themselves. The idea, they had, the men of Saul had run away. They'd run away down this, down this wadi into the holes, the crags, the cracks. They'd run away into the countryside. They'd fled the scene. And now these Philistines are like, ha, they're coming out of the holes, man. Here they come. Here comes two of them. They think they're all tough, right? The men of the garrison answered Jonathan and his armor rare and said, Come up to us. We'll show you a thing. Ooh, do you think that was said in mocking? They're like, Come up. See if you can try. If you make it to the top, if you make it to the top, we'll beat you down, but we'll just laugh while you while we watch you climb. This will be a fun this will be a fun scene for us to make fun of you while you're trying to do this. Has to be what they were thinking. They say, come up, man, we'll, we'll show you a thing. When you get here, we'll show, you what's, we'll show you what we can do to you. We'll let you climb all the way to the top, and then we'll beat you down and make fun of you while we're killing you, and then we'll toss you back over. And Jonathan said to his armor bearer, come up after me, for the Lord hath delivered them into the hand of Israel. Man, that's faith. He's like, the Lord just gave us the green light. Whoo! What an incredible thing. So he starts to, to climb. Notice that the, this is done in Jonathan's mind. He has set his heart to this. He's asked the Lord, Lord, if you want to do something with my life today, here I am. Whatever you want to do. And he says, man, the Lord just gave us a green light. The battle is done in Jonathan's mind. So Jonathan, verse 13, climbed up, notice this, upon his hands and upon his feet. So when you picture, what it's telling us is he went up a steep spot. He didn't go up a spot he could walk up. He went up a spot that he had to climb with his hands and his feet up the side of this hill. Incredible. 
He climbed up upon his hands and upon his feet and his armor bearer after him. And here when they get to the top, they fell before Jonathan and his armor bearer slew after him. He gets to the top and it is game on. He doesn't even like catch his breath. Sword is out. He is just going for it. The Lord has delivered this enemy to my hands today. And he just, he has, man, this guy's got a heart of faith. After the first slaughter, which Jonathan and his armor bearer made, verse 14, was about 20 men within, as it were, a half acre of land, which a yoke of oxen might plow. As a surveyor, I, I've used this as a, um, there's a lot there. <laughs> it's exactly 330 feet. I'll just, if you want more information on that, I'll explain it to you later. I don't have the time today. But it's giving us a little bit of a linkage of, of, of what he's describing here. It's 330 feet that in this first little charge, he get, takes out 20 guys. And then God steps on to the scene. There was a trembling in the host, in the field, and among all the people. The garrison and the spoilers, they also trembled. And the earth quaked, so it was a very great trembling. We sung that song today with Elohim, the word Elohim in it. That's what it's describing here. It was a trembling of Elohim, a trembling of God. Man, the fear and the anxiety that's within this host is because the Lord is starting to, to take action on this. And the, and the earth quakes when that happened. And these guys are just freaking out. So what's happening here, I believe, that the... Host of the Philistines, the description of the number exceeds any other number that we've seen in Scripture with regards to the Philistines. So most scholars believe this was a, a conglomeration of a number of armies that had come together in order to actually just wipe Israel off the face of the planet. Like, they all came together. Israel's got to go. Saul's down to 600 men. Let's just go completely annihilate these guys. So there's probably a, a couple of different nations that have come together. And in this moment of trembling, I believe those nations turn against one another and begin to fight amongst each other. That's what's happening here. The watchmen, verse 16, of Saul in Gibeah of Benjamin, they looked. They were on the higher ground at the other side of this canyon. They looked and behold, the multitude melted away and they went on beating one another down. And, said, and then said Saul unto the people that were with him, check this out, number now and see who's gone from us. And when they had numbered, behold, Jonathan and his armor bearer were not there. What does Saul think? Not again. <laughs> this is what got us into this problem the first time. Saul, Jonathan took out the garrison at the hill. That's the whole reason this host is here in the first place. Is because Jonathan started this trouble back in the last battle, right? This never would have happened if Jonathan wasn't there. And Saul's like, not again. I'm just trying to get out of this mess. The man of the flesh. Jonathan's like, no way, man. They are in the covenant of the Lord. They got to go. So Saul said to the, these people, Saul said unto Ahita, Ahiah, I'm sorry, bring hither the ark of God, for the ark of God was at that time with the children of Israel. Very interesting. Saul's like, let me look spiritual for a minute. <laughs> right? Go call the ark. Go call the priests. Because I'm going to approach this problem in a real spiritual way. Who was being spiritual in this scene? Was it Saul? Or was it Jonathan? See, sometimes the life of the spirit is a life of action. It's not always just looking good, playing the part. Here we see Saul, he's just, he's, he's doing that. He is not the one who's doing anything spiritual in this scene. It's the guy with the sword in his hand. It came to pass while Saul talked unto the priest that the noise that was in the host of the Philistines went on and increased. You get the, hold on, you're interrupting my church service here with what you're doing, Lord. Let me, let me finish my church service before, you know, so that we can 
you know, take care of the spiritual things. No, God was acting. God was shaking the earth on the other side of the ravine, and Saul's trying to be spiritual. Saul said unto the priest, withdraw thy hand. That's that idea. I believe he's inquiring of the Lord. At the Urim and the Thummim, the priest would pull out his hand to, to give these answers to, uh, to Saul. And Saul and the people that were with him assembled themselves, and they came to the battle. And behold, every man's sword was against his fellow. This is in the camp of the Philistines. And there was a very great discomfiture. I like that in King James. <laughs> it's basically like a confused uproar, a riot that's gone wrong. Everyone's fighting one with another. Moreover, the Philistines that were with, the, the Hebrews that were with the Philistines before that time, which went up with them into the camp from the country round about, even they turned to be with the Israelites that were with Saul. So now the, those who had fled Saul's army, they get bolstered in their faith. They're coming back in to help with this battle. You know, many times our steps of faith are just what someone else needs to actually step into the battle is too. I share how, how uh, Greg is an, an example to me in my walk with the Lord. Man, you never know who's watching, right? You never know who's watching your life. As you take steps of faith, you never know the repercussions of how that will affect others. It's just how the kingdom works. So we have these other guys join back in. Likewise, all the men of Israel which had hid themselves in Mount Ephraim, when they heard that the Philistines fled, even they also followed hard after them in the battle. So the Lord saved Israel that day. It just so happened on a day, right? Jonathan shows up. He says, here I am, Lord. I just, I just got a hunch, Lord, that you want to do something big. How about, a, how about we go over? to this innumerable army, and just say, hi, here we are. We're ready to fight. That's what he did. He says, Lord, maybe, maybe you'll save by, by many, or maybe just two. Maybe just one today, Lord. And we get the full circle here as we come to verse 23, that the Lord saved Israel that day. And the battle passed over to Beth Haven. The, re the rest of the, the chapter here describes the chase, how the, how the enemy fled. They, they came and they, um, they were able to have a, just an incredible victory against this enemy. What an amazing picture of faith. I love this. That God can use one life and a little bit of faith to change the course of a nation. This really was pivotal. In the nation. You know, if you, you realize just with the context of the events, if Jonathan had not done this one thing, the nation of Israel may not exist today. Saul had had one victory. <laughs> he had had one victory as a king, and all his guys ran away from him. So he's got 600 men. If that enemy would have come and just wiped out Saul, the nation may not exist. The faith of one man in one moment changed the course of history for what God was up to. It's incredible. We say God plus one is a majority. And it's true. The Lord can use one life and a little bit of faith to change the course of history. There's never a, a scene that you can face. There's never a scenario that you come to that's outside of God's sovereignty, that's outside of his ability to take care of. And he puts those in front of us um, to allow us to be part of what he's up to. I love that. You know, maybe you're here today and you just say, hey, I, I really want my life to matter to God. I, I want to make a difference. In my family, I want to make a difference in my workplace, my community. Do you feel that way? Do you want your life to make a difference in the kingdom of God? Maybe you're here today and you say, Lord, I, I want to do great things for you. I just don't even know where to start. I don't know, where, I don't, I don't know how that looks. I don't know what you, what you want from me today. 
maybe you're here today and you, and you truly say, hey, yeah, I want all those things, but I really don't know where to start. I don't know where to take that first step of faith. It's a very simple passage. If you turn with me to John chapter, nine, chapter 10, and I'll close with this. You ask yourself, hey, where do I, where do I begin this journey of faith that I can make a difference in this world, that God can use my life. Where do I start? Well, there's a door that you walk through. Jesus is really simple with this. He says, hey, I am, verse 9 there, I am the door. By me, if any man enter in, he shall be saved. The first step to this adventure of faith is, hey, you need to be saved. You need to be saved. And there's one way to become saved, and it's through the person of Jesus Christ. It's through his death on the cross and his atonement for your sins. You put your faith in him, and the Bible declares that you are declared righteous. That's an incredible thought there, right? To, to even think that we could be righteous. But when you place your faith in Jesus Christ, his righteousness clothes you, <laughs> takes the place of our sinful nature. If we enter by the door... You can be saved, and you'll still go, you shall go in and out and find pasture. Do you want to have a life of fulfillment? Do you want to have a life that you feel like you've made a difference in this world, that you've, that you've been pleasing to God, that you've actually, you are fulfilled in the things that you do? Man, it's found in Jesus. He says we can go in and out. Man, when, when you've become saved, and you're walking out that relationship with your Lord, and, he, and you find that there's so much freedom in your relationship with Him, that He... He, he'll use your life for things that, that can really, really make a difference in this world. You can go in and out. You can find pasture. You can find fulfillment in this life. You can find joy and peace that you never knew was possible in him. The contrast to that, it says the thief, that the thief comes not, to, not but to, for to kill, to steal and to kill and to destroy. The enemy is out to, to take this away from you, the joy that can be found in, in a loving relationship with the Lord. But Jesus says, I am come that they might have life and that they might have it more abundantly. I looked up that word just this morning, kind of a last minute thing. <laughs> and I looked at the definition and it, and it gave me a new word to share with you guys today. That more abundantly, the part of the definition said super add. I was like, oh, that's a new one. I never knew that word existed. But the Lord can super add to your life and give you things and ability that you never knew was possible. Here we see this picture of Jonathan acting that out in a very real way. This is not a, this is not a Bible story. This is a fact of a man who took God at his word and allowed God to work in and through his life. Did God super add to what Jonathan could do that day? Yes or no? Yeah. He didn't have the ability to take out a multitude that was greater than the sand of the seashore. He had one sword. The Bible actually tells us in that context that Israel didn't even have swords. Like they had sticks and staves and stuff. And here they're faced with this multitude, right? Oh man, we bring very, very little to the table. But it doesn't hinge on our ability, right? It hinges on the character of God and His ability. When you place your faith in the things that are impossible, man, don't place it in your own ability. You place it in who God is. And you say, God, hey, if you want to use my life, if you want to speak through me to this broken world around us, then Lord, here I am. I'm just going to show up to the battle because it just might be that you'll work for us today. Can you take the Lord at, at his word in, those, in your moments of faith? Man, do you want to live the abundant life that is described for us here? It's a life of faith. It's a life of taking the Lord at his word. It's a life of adventure. <laughs> I can tell you that. This was an adventure that we looked at today, right? Boy, he had an adventure. You can have a life that's adventurous in faith as well. It's a life of security. There's no greater security that's found. Jesus says, I'm the, I'm the door. If you want to be saved, there's only one way. The life of security is found there. The life of fulfillment is found there. And we have this imagery of the contrast of Jonathan 
and Saul here presented to us today. He simply presented himself as hands and feet for the Lord to do what he desired through his life. Amen. Bill, if you want to come up and close us in a, in a song, I'll kind of pray us out from there. And Lord, we just look at this passage today. Lord, I, you put it on my heart for this church to hear today. For these people, Lord, there's, a, there's a, a reason for that, Lord. There's no mistakes in your kingdom. Lord, there's somebody here today that needs to take a step of faith. There's a problem here today that's larger than we can handle. That's, that's a given. There are situations in our, in our lives represented in those in this room today, Lord, that are they're just greater. They're like the sand is the seashore when you look at them. It's impossible, Lord. So, Lord, I pray that you would, Lord, work that seed of faith in this place today, Lord, so that as we understand your character, as we understand who you are and how you want to act in and through us, Lord, that we can present our, our bodies, Lord, to you, to, to be used for your glory. Lord, I want to encourage each and every person here today that that is the place of ultimate fulfillment in life. It's not found in stuff, that's for sure, because stuff goes away. It's not found in money, because that's going away <laughs> quicker than we can imagine, Lord. It's not found in fame. Solomon proves that to us in the Bible. Um, Lord, it's not found in, in anything but you, Jesus. And so, Lord, I pray that you would give us that faith, the faith of Jonathan today, as an example, Lord, to live it out, to trust you, to believe in you, that you're going to do great things. And it's in your name we commit this service. In Jesus' name, amen. Let's stand.